Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today, we have a very wonderful guest, Mrs. Rachel Stein. She is a pretty well-known author, and she is very involved in Bigger Holim, and through her work in Bigger Holim, works somewhat as a chaplain also. So she has, unfortunately, a lot of experience dealing with death and grief. Today's podcast is sponsored the Ilinishmas Tzipa Rivka Bas Baruch. And Mrs. Stein, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I just called you Mrs. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Private joke, unless you want to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about when, I guess let's just, I'll tell the audience that when I was reading your book, I think it's your latest book called Lift Off, right? Is that your latest book? No, my most recent book was actually a collection of Holocaust stories that I got from survivors. Oh, really? To tell the story, it's called. But that's fine. You can. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was reading that the latest book, and there was a story that struck me called The Last Shabbos. And of course, I had no idea, but it turned out to be your own story. And what struck me was the difference when you lost your mother at a very young age and you weren't there by the actual patira versus when your father-in-law was already much older and you were more experienced and you really made sure to be there no matter what, even though you obviously didn't know if you were running in for nothing or not. So I guess if we could just talk about it a little bit, you were, I think you said 24 when your mother died, right? I was 26. 26. So, well, you could share with us a little bit about being so young and watching your mother die. It was pretty traumatic. Definitely, definitely a difficult time. I mean, she was my only parent for all those years, right? I lost my father when I was four. So to have her taken away also felt like my roots were destroyed. I would say that during the grieving process, unfortunately, I was probably not as present as I would have liked to be. I, I shouldn't even say that it's unfortunate. It was actually for very fortunate and beautiful reasons. I was expecting child number seven, and I also had a host of young children who were very beautiful and wonderful distractions. So Hold on one second. So you were 26 yeah. years old and expecting your seventh child, Kanina Her? Correct. I got married at 18 and Baruch Hashem had year after year. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was busy. Very, very busy. So I feel had it happened later in life at a different stage, I would have definitely focused on the Shiva and the grief more, but I really wasn't able to. Right. At that time. Right. Did you ever even feel like an orphan? Did you ever say, I'm an orphan, but I have six kids. How could I be an orphan? Or you didn't even have time to like think like that. So you're saying as an adult or as a child? Yeah, no, as an adult. As, as an, an adult, adult like you my didn't have parents. You were only 26 years old. That's, you know, very little not to have parents. Very young, I should say. Right. I don't think it struck me that way then. Looking back now or even seeing 
my contemporaries, unfortunately, losing parents now, I would say that is highlighted now. But at that time, it was just my life, and it was sad and difficult, and I struggled. I don't think I saw myself as poor little orphan then. At 26, I thought I was extremely mature. <laughs> right. So do you have a hard time now when your contemporaries are losing parents? Like, I'm sure that you're a feeling person and you feel bad for their grief and what they're going through. But is there a part of you that says, but you had your parents until you were whatever, 60, 70, 80, whatever, however old they are? <laughs> yes. So that is a very sensitive and thoughtful question. And definitely, I almost feel like I can't feel otherwise. So on the one hand, I certainly sympathize with their grief, and I feel for them. And sometimes I wonder if it's even harder for them in a way, because they got to know their parents for so much longer and got to be more attached. So the the pain when they don't have that parent has is more intense in a way. On the other hand, I also, inside, definitely often think like you are so lucky that you had this parent for so long. Yes, I I definitely, definitely think that. And of course, would never say it. And I never feel like somebody isn't entitled to her pain and grief and anguish, no matter what age a person dies. Because honestly, even if a person lives until 120, it's too young and it's too short. and, And we love the people we love and we want them to be with us. So that's my response. Yes, I almost wish I didn't feel that way because I I would love to be completely altruistic and feel like without feeling like you're so lucky, you know, just let them be entitled to their grief. They certainly are. Wow. What about, you talk about your father-in-law. I know the story is about him and when he was Nifter, but there's no mention of your mother-in-law. Did you have a mother-in-law? Were they married? Baruch Hashem, yes, yes. My mother-in-law was around. She was actually not there at the time of Tira. She herself is elderly and was staying a few miles away, did not get there in time, which may have been a good thing. She was there with us that entire day, though. She went home to sleep, and it happened in the middle of the night. So, yeah, Baruch Hashem, she is still around until 120, and she's doing well, and she's a wonderful lady. We're grateful to have her. So someone once shared with me that her relationship with her mother-in-law was so much stronger because she didn't have a mother. And we are like when she had little children and she would have called up her mother and said, oh, mommy, this is what, you know, Sarah just said. Instead, she ended up calling up her mother-in-law and that strengthened the relationship so much. So I'm curious if you had a situation like that where you feel you had a better relationship with her, a closer relationship with her. No. No, it wasn't that type of relationship. I think we are too different. I love her. I respect her. She is a fabulous lady. We are blessed to have her. She revels in her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She's just, you know, a very positive, lovely person. But it was not that type of relationship. It is not that type of relationship. But we have a caring, intimate relationship nonetheless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when your father-in-law was Nifter, I think you wrote that it was 22 years after your mother was Nifter. So it just that struck me as like, wow, does that mean there was guilt that you were carrying around for so many years that you missed the actual patira of your mother? Right. So that is also an excellent question. In the beginning, I was definitely browbeating myself. Like, what 
you saw it happening. I was literally watching her die. And as I saw the respirator puffing up her chest, like the breaths were so difficult for her at that time. And the machine, she, there was one time I remember like the respirator practically threw her body up with the force of the air that it breathed into her and her eyes opened wide. She looked scared. And I felt like I must be seeing her last moments. How could it be otherwise? On the other hand, I think I was in a very human stage of denial. And I told myself, can't be. She's going to get better. And And so I, I was struggling at the time. I was I had been driven actually by a friend to Philadelphia. I, I was living in Long Island at the time. And I even asked the doctors, do you think I have some time? Because I had a sick child and a sick husband at home, but they both had the flu. So wow. I felt torn and like, how can I leave them? They were burning up with fever. On the other hand, here's my mother and this could be it. So the doctor said it could go either way. She could pass away now. It could be 24 hours. It could be 48 hours. There's no way to know. So again, I saw what I saw. And now, honestly, after that experience, I would know that those are a person's last moments. But at the time, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I said, mommy, you have to wait for me. I have to get home to my husband. I have to get home to my child. And I will see you tomorrow. And I gave her a kiss and a hug and I squeezed her hand and I walked out. And then I literally got that call minutes later. So did I feel bad? Yes. Was I telling myself, you stupid person, like what in the world did you just do? Yes. Guilt, I suppose. But honestly, as the time went on, I realized that number one, she probably wanted to protect me. I was her baby. And if a person has any koach at all, you hear a person either waiting for their loved one or the opposite, right? You hear those stories. I don't know where that falls in with Hashem and the Malacham of us and the time that Hashem wants it to happen. I, I suppose Hashem coordinates the whole situation. Right. But I do think that based on the way she lived her life, it would make sense that she was trying to protect me the way she always did and would not have wanted me to see that. So I came to that realization later and did not continue to beat myself up. I feel like it was beyond my control. I did my best. I was there with her almost until the last moment. And I told myself that she would be okay. You know, I'm a human being. I'm not Hashem. I did the best I could in that situation. But it did take me time to get there. Wow. Do you have a daughter that's named after her? Yes. Yes. That pregnancy, that child that I was expecting during that time is Yehudas for my mother. Yeah. So everybody else calls her her middle name, which I think is so typical. Yehudas Rina is her name. Rina's easier. It's a fun name. I call her Yehudas Rina and always will. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so. so she your favorite? I won't tell your other kids. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, she is beloved, and so are my others, and that's an honest answer. Right. I personally, I never felt an affinity towards a certain child either more than another just because they're named after my parent or my sibling or whatever. It's interesting because I sometimes I see characteristics that are similar of the person that they're named after, but I can't really say I love them more or whatever. <laughs> like, right, right. <clears throat> no, it didn't do that, but it, it was certainly and still is 
Did it bother you? People probably said after she was born, oh, it's so beautiful, such a nechama. Did you get annoyed? I get so annoyed when people say that. Right, right. Yeah, people never know what to say. And honestly, no matter what they say, they're almost doomed, right? Because everybody is different. And so often a comment can be okay to one person at a certain stage of grief, and it will not sit well with another person. So you just never know. I don't remember people saying that. I do remember being pretty hysterical after she was born and saying, mommy, I didn't want to have to name a child for you. I wanted you to still be here. Right. So let's go to your father-in-law, 22 years later. It seems like you have such a wonderful relationship with him. Was it hard for you that that you didn't sit shiva for him? I didn't find that part hard, although what I found hard, which is interesting, I'm not sure why I needed this, but I would have liked acknowledgement that I was also in pain. And that I didn't get. It was almost like I was secondary, not a significant part of the Avelos. And since then, when I've visited friends, you know, daughters-in-law who have been going through this, going through Shiva with their husbands, I've made sure to acknowledge them. There was one person I remember during Shiva who approached me before he left And he said, I know what it's like. I'm also an in-law, but I'm a child too. And I remember appreciating that so much. It's like, okay, one person gets this, you know? That was very kind and compassionate. There's a term that, I don't know if it's like relatively new or not, but lately I've been hearing it a lot, which is like standing shiva, which is basically when you lose someone that you're very close with, but, you know, not someone that you sit shiva for. So I guess that's really, you know, what you were doing. You were standing shiva and that. That standing wasn't being acknowledged, which is hard. And what about as far as like afterwards, like, I guess I'm going to assume your husband had his own journey and yet you really also were grieving in your own way. Like how did, how did that work out? How did that play out? Yeah, I, I tried to be supportive. I mean, I feel like my role, I feel like in general, a spousal role is to be there for the child because that has to be harder. I, I, tuned into my own grief. I kind of supported myself through the journey, but I tried to be there for him while he was going through it. I think it was was definitely a bit of a shock for him because Baruch Hashem, his parents, you know, and like I said, his mother is still here at Mayav Esrim. He had never experienced anything like that. So I think it really struck him in a very hard way. Tried to be a good wife. So how did you support yourself? When I felt sad, I let it out, whether it was to cry or whether it was to remember him, or even when we would have conversations about him, whether it was with my husband, my children, I allowed myself room to feel, to hurt, to miss the same as I would do for anyone else who was grieving. You already have your chaplaincy education, whatever the word is, at the, at this point? At yes. Point. I went through many years, a, a total of four years because I did it part-time. But yes, mm-hmm. I went through the training. I, I guess maybe that's like why you're so good at knowing how to take care of yourself. <laughs> Someone said to me the other day about self-compassion. Like, you have to be compassionate to yourself the same way that you would look at someone else and feel bad for them and and be passionate towards what they're going through. You have to do that to yourself. And I was like, I know, but by me, there's way too many excuses that I give myself of why I 
shouldn't be feeling like that or shouldn't be doing that or shouldn't be acting like that or or whatever it is. I'm I'm always like, I have a million excuses. So when I hear like the healthy perspective of like, I needed to take care of myself, I need to support myself, that always leaves me like in awe, like, wow, could I get there one day? <laughs> you can, you definitely can. <laughs> yeah, I think, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I think we do all have a tendency in different ways. So maybe not with grief. Maybe it's not in that area that I beat myself up. But we often are impatient with ourselves and less kind to ourselves than we are to others. I think that's a normal hu- human tendency. But really, to be a healthy person, we have to take care of ourselves. Because ultimately, I think when we ourselves are healthier and treat ourselves with more compassion, that will spill over into our treatment of others. So I think it's all around good. I know it's true, right? It's spilled over into the treatment of others, yet it's so much easier to be kinder to others, which almost seems like it doesn't make sense. Right, right. When you work as in hospital, I know you don't work for a hospital, like you told me earlier, but through Beaker Holden, do you end up dealing with that from people as well? Definitely, definitely. Or people all across the board, you know, more modern. But yeah, we've had not from people as well. Do you see any stark differences between from and not from when they go through grief? That is an interesting question. And I feel like it's been a while since I've actually dealt with somebody not from going through grief as opposed to somebody less from who's going through illness. Not necessarily. Not that I can think of. I have found in my experience that people really want to hold on to Hashem during these points. It's almost like who and what else do they have? So in my experience, I have found that they gravitate towards Hashem and that they even embrace even those who are not from, that they even embrace whatever they can that they're willing to incorporate from Yiddishkeit because it gives them some sort of comfort. Right. Something to like hold on to. Right. That's right. Have you ever been in a position that you had to say be doing with someone that was dying? Like the family wasn't from or very modern, didn't know how to? That I have not. No. Do people ask you for like what to say, how to say it, or not so much? To people who are grieving, to people in their final moments, what are you referring to? People in their final moments that, well, I was really thinking more of people that are like dying, but are already like not so conscious. They can't really say it themselves. The family members probably want it to be said for them, no? Right, right. So we have kind of a a nusach, if you will, when somebody is in that position and the family wants to say something. So typically I will say something to the effect of Hashem can do anything and the situation could turn around, although to our human eyes, it looks like it's going in a certain direction and the person is coming to the end of his journey or her journey in this world. To that effect, we have some prayers that we typically say and then we go through them. And, you know, at the end of that, I I would always wish the family strength and, and let them know that I'm available if they need help and that they should have strength and comfort as they're going through this situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was asking because, you know, Chavilov the Mishnah has Vidoy like cards. A lot of, I don't know, you must have gotten them from us. No, I don't know. A lot of chaplains have them. A lot of bigger Cholam rooms have them. 
And it's just like something that, you know, people find very useful. It's because it's not like you're carrying around the big sitter. It's, it's just, it's very convenient. But we've been talking of lately of even putting it on the site, like a recording of it, so that if there is someone that can't say it or, you know, either doesn't know how to read Hebrew or just not in the frame of mind, whatever it is, that they could go to our website and just, you know, press the play button and it could be said for them. So I guess these conversations that we had are like on my mind and that's why I got all into it. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful idea. No, I don't have those. No? No, I would like them. (laughs) Then I could send them to you. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Yes, and if anyone is listening and they want, we do give them free so you could just, I guess, go on our website or you can email me at work. So let's talk about your support groups. I know that you tried a support group and it for those that lost the parents, right? And it didn't really work. So either it was because it was a more general thing. I don't remember if we specifically had it for losing a parent or if it was just a grief group. It was a while back when we tried there was a small group of people who came and what I found with those particular people was actually several almanos is that they didn't want to focus so much on their grief and their pain, but they kind of wanted to be distracted. So whereas the whole point of a support group is to really get into what you're feeling and validate, et cetera, let give the person space. Right. to express themselves, they didn't seem to want to go there except for one person. And I remember she actually kind of took a leading role and didn't give much room for other people to speak. Uh-huh. So it, it didn't go well. And it was such a poor turnout, maybe three people. And we have we have a growing community here. And certainly, unfortunately, a lot of people who've been affected by grief in various ways. We then transitioned to a group in within our shul that was open to people, I think it was age 50 and older, and did it more as an activity group. Like we had a little bit of Torah within the group, and then we had some type of activity, which seemed to be more the way these people were leaning, like they wanted socialization, they wanted distraction, they wanted a bright light within their pain. They didn't want to just focus on the pain. So we tried that for a while. That actually was pretty successful, and we had a nice turnout with that. Unfortunately, what we found with that is that there was one person who, you know, people have their ways of doing things. There was one person who had a certain way that she wanted to see it run, and she really wanted a leading role, even though she wasn't the one who initiated and she wasn't the leader. And she made it difficult for the two of us who were leading the group, who were more laid back, but we had our own ways of doing it. So it wound up dissipating. I wound up pulling out. I didn't want to be arguing with this person. She's a lovely person. She just had her own views. So what ultimately wound up happening, which was actually very nice, and it's still going on now, and it's incredibly successful, is that the shul started a group for, I think, is it 50? No, it's 60 plus. And it's once a month, and they get a speaker, and they serve a free lunch. And it's amazing the turnout they get. So Baruch Hashem, you know what? It wound up turning into something. Unfortunately, I'm not the one involved or fortunately, whatever, however you want to look at it. But a need is being served right now, which is wonderful. And these people are getting some of what they need at least. So that's good. So what are they? They're mostly almanas. So this is really more 
just elderly people. And I would say, even though it's officially for age 60 and up, you typically see people with their walkers like 80s and you see a lot of older people coming into this. And I think they really, really need it. It's like so exciting for them to have a program to go to and a free lunch. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's everybody. It's not necessarily grief at all. It's simply a group that gets together once a month for an inspiring program. Wow. That's nice. So that's what it evolved into. Okay. I guess you tried, Hashem said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I find that I, I support groups, I, I learned, are they're really hard to get them going because people are so afraid. I guess in the firm world, we were all so connected. People are really afraid to really open up and really be vulnerable and like really share what's going on for them. There, It's just like such a fear that it's really hard to get it going. I think that was it. I think even with the small group, it was almost like, I'm not going to tell you what's really going on in my heart. Like you have three people here who like, why is it their business? So I think people do like talking one-on-one, but get them in a group and they clam up. Right. Wow. It's a pity because really, you know, there's just so much to gain from a group. Like, it, there's just to get here different people's perspectives and different people's experiences, not perspectives, more like experiences, just to take in all the experiences and then kind of see what works for your own self could be so helpful. Right. So I guess it's a little bit of a pity when people are just so afraid. They're really like losing out. Right. Right. It could be, although I will tell you from a personal experience that I had, I, had told you privately, I I lost my son two years ago, and I did try a support group to help myself. I actually did not find it helpful, because I guess I was in the throes of such, such grief, that hearing other people's grief, it's like, one second, I I don't really want to hear your pain and your grief. Like I sat there crying, hearing their story, but I was too immersed in my own and it didn't feel helpful to me at all. It certainly wasn't lifting me up. (laughs) If anything, it was making me cry more. I think I just, I just needed to, uh, to embrace my own grief at that time. So at that time, at least it really was not helpful. I I haven't really tried it since. Right, right. I'm sorry about your son. I I don't think you told me that. I did not know that. Unless I missed that email somehow or something. I did not know that. Yeah, Hi, sorry. Thank you. All right. So it's not really though about hearing people's stories. It's really connecting to to other people's feelings, right? Like you could probably relate as a mother. I don't know any details how old your son was or whatever it is, but you could probably relate to like not wanting to walk past that shul that your son davened and going in a roundabout way because you just can't pass that shul or similar things like that that people go. Yes, absolutely. So that's really, so maybe one day when I'm very bored, I'm going to try to get support groups all over America going because I think it really could be helpful. I think people really like, they want it so badly and they're so scared of it at the same time. They need that kind of like push. Um, Go for it. (laughs) When I'm bored, so far I'm not bored. (laughs) (laughs) I, I guess before we end, if there's anything that I didn't ask, or say, or I don't know, anything that's important that we should end off with? I guess what I would like to share is a wish for anyone who's listening and experiencing grief of any sort 
that Hamakam Yanachem Aschem Basach Shavelitziyam and that's not just for the first month or for the first year. Unfortunately, it's for a lifetime, even though time does heal and we get stronger, but we always carry that pain. So I would like to wish all of Kal Yisrael just a refua and strength and perhaps a light to hold on to is that as much as we have that pain, we know that Avino of Harachaman gives us pain to grow and to help us become stronger. And I, I have realized and seen in my experience that those of us who have gone through major life challenges seem to be more compassionate, more sensitive. Like you can see the growth. You can see not that anybody wants that, not that anybody welcomes it. We all want easy and we all want happy. And that's a, a common human thing who wants difficulties. But Hashem knows what he's doing. And somehow in his wisdom, he is helping us grow through this. So if we can hold on to that as well, hold on to our cherished memories and just do our best to help the ones that we've lost in any way we can through creating schusim here and holding on to Hashem and knowing how much he loves us and cares about us and is holding us in our grief. It was really a pleasure. I appreciate your bringing me on and I am happy to be available if anybody would like to follow up or have questions or if there's any way that I can be helpful. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I love that last point that you said about now for your entire life. I think that's like so validating. And I think so many people need to hear that. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishnah.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishnah.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be Mechazic Others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast. 